Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at CAMH.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Last winter, we tried out something new called Canada Land at the Movies. We did a couple of screenings. It was the idea of Eric Vayette, who is the programmer at the Review Cinema, beautiful old movie theater in the Roncesville neighborhood here in Toronto, where we invited journalists to screen their favorite movies about the news business and to talk about them first. We did this sort of in the dead of winter, and it was fantastic. We had these large crowds come out to watch these movies and to hear us uh, chat and to talk with us about the movies. And we're going to play you those conversations now, along with some scenes from those movies in question. The conversations I had with our guests, first Michael Enright, talking about the film Deadline USA, this this great 1952 Bogart film about the newspaper business. Uh, and secondly, Robin Doolittle sharing Shattered Glass the 2003 docudrama about Stephen Glass, who was this fabulous, this liar, this journalist at the New Republic magazine who just cooked all of his stories and how his colleagues found out that he'd been doing so. I learned a lot in talking to these two people. Also, journalist Jeet Heer joined us for that second screening because he is an editor at the New Republic, which perhaps never recovered from the Stephen Glass thing. And he talks to us a little bit about what life is like at that magazine in the wake of that scandal. 
I had a fantastic time talking to these journalists. I thought they had really interesting things to say, both about the movies and about themselves and what the movies mean to them. And if you weren't able to join us on those cold winter nights at the Review Cinema in Toronto, you can hear those conversations now. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Michael Sinclair, Ray Zick, Kerry Buchanan, Anna Coe, John Manning, Jonathan Fiddler, Stephen Oliver, and Matt Fox. Matt, why did you decide to be awesome? Because I think it matters where funding for journalism comes from and because these stories are important. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody Half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does Help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Okay, today's episode is also brought to you by Casper. Casper has figured out one perfect mattress, an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. It combines springy latex and supportive memory foam to create an award-winning sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. Time Magazine named it one of the best inventions of 2015. This is an award-winning mattress. I sleep on a Casper mattress. I have enjoyed the whole process. You know, I, I, I pay attention to these little things. I like the incredibly small, considering what's inside of it, box that it arrived in. I liked that if I didn't like my Casper mattress, I had a hundred days to try it out and they would just take it. They would, they shipped it for free. They'd take it back if I didn't like it. That wasn't a problem. I opened this plastic that it's in and it just, vump, it, 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 it sort of expanded into our bedroom. And immediately it was clear that this was a superior mattress to the much more expensive mattress that it replaced. One thing that they would like you to know about their mattress for some reason is that it is made in America. That is all well and good. What I would like you to know about Casper mattresses is that you'll get $50 off of their already very reasonable price if you go to casper.com slash CanadaLand and use the offer code CanadaLand on a mattress purchase. 
Terms and conditions apply. Check it out now. You cannot beat this price. I enjoy this mattress every night. It helps me sleep better. Casper.com slash Canada Land. Thank you. I think you get a sense of the amazing stuff that Eric does here and theaters like this and the kind of movies they want to keep alive. We just got to talking about what we might do together as a screening series and we realized how many incredible movies there are about the news and about journalism, you know, from Citizen Kane to Spotlight, part of which I think is probably just because it's just really effective screenwriting to have a character whose job it is just to say, so what happened? Start at the beginning. It cuts down on awful expository dialogue. And it makes me wonder, actually, what we're going to do as, you know, traditional reporter jobs die and that trope just sort of disappears. Like, it's not as exciting to have somebody, like, screen-grabbing Twitter and, you know, driving your narrative through that. But... There are tons. I mean, Superman was a reporter. Spider-Man is a journalist. Like, it's just, it's so common when you actually sit down and start to think about what are the movies that actually deal with the news, with journalism, with the media. So I called up Michael Enright and I asked him what movies about the news business mean anything to him. And he said, Deadline USA is one of the movies that made me want to be a journalist. So please, a warm round of applause for Michael Enright. I know it's early in the night, but I'm going to correct you right off the bat. I didn't want to be a journalist. I wanted to be a reporter. What's the difference? Reporters borrowed money from journalists. (laughs) And journalists own more than one suit. I gave it the best 14 years of my life. And what have I got to show for it, huh? $81 in the bank. Two dead husbands and... Two or three kids I always wanted but never had. But I wouldn't change those years. Not for anything in this world. So this movie came out in 1952. So you were 28, 30 at the time? Eight, 18 months old. I was carried into the theater by my mother. <laughs> what about this film connected with you? Two things. One was the whole idea of newspapering. In this town in the early 50s, we had the star of the telly and the globe. And the competition was epic between and among the three. And I started reading a daily newspaper when I was eight years old. And because we were Irish Catholic, my father would read read only the star, not that anti-Catholic rag, the telegram. So I grew up reading the star. And I love the idea of reporters. Uh, They were all newspaper men. They were all men. And the second thing I liked about Bogart, they say that Fred Astaire knew better than any other human being how to wear a tuxedo. Humphrey Bogart knew better than any human being how to wear a bow tie. And if I remember this movie, he not only wears a bow tie, he ties it. And you see how it's tied. So that's why I wear bow ties. There's an interesting question about the way that the news business is glorified in the movies. There's maybe a romance that could be dangerous to the profession if people enter it thinking that that's the way it's actually going to be. But then journalists and reporters in the movies are always talking about journalistic ethics and they're always taking down corruption and doing very noble things. And if people get into journalism for those reasons, then maybe it brings something good. Is it good or bad? Is it, is it good that people have these conceptions? And how did it work out for you? Did you have your 
dreams dashed when you actually got your first job? Before any of that, I think newspaper movies are about process. And um, the better ones get it right. There's a scene in the movie where uh, the pressman runs into the managing editor's office, into Humphrey's office, and he says, put it on page one in the fudge. And the fudge on the newspaper, it was for late edition race results. And it would run on the front page, and it looked like a fudge box. So the guy, Richard Brooks, who directed, wrote the thing, had been a newspaper man, and he knew about the technical terms. I think the idea of process is intriguing to, to people who don't know anything about it. One of the worst impacts on young journalists was all the president's men. Why? I think a lot of young people looked at that and said, I want to do that kind of stuff, and tried to be Woodstein, um, and uh, were sadly disillusioned that that wasn't the way it worked. It was true in the sense it was factual, but I think it gave young journalists a kind of false impression. Uh, investigative journalism is very tough, very expensive, and is dying. Uh, when I was at Globe and Mail, I worked on a, on a team uh, for about a year, and I hated every moment of it. I started out in a newspaper in Brampton um, called the Brampton Times and Conservator. Guess what its politics was um, for $38 a week, out of which I had to pay Mrs. Graham's boarding house $8. Those are still uh, the going rates, by the way. Indeed. Yeah. I got a job at the Globe and Mail, and um, I was told because I didn't finish high school, I'll never make it. They put me on two weeks probation. The story, the first story I worked on was a kid who drowned off the breakwater down here in the lake. And um, the story was that some smelt fishermen were down there, and they said, oh, look, there's a kid drowning. Can you pass the worms? You know, they, they ignored him. So the day, I had to do the day two story, and I went down to the thing. I didn't know what the hell to write. And there was a kid on a bicycle looking into the water, and I went over and I said, hi, shouldn't you be in school? Yes, I just came down to see where my brother died over the weekend. And I thought, hallelujah. <laughs> um, so I interviewed the kid, and I went back to the Globe, and I wrote the story. And I remember the lead. Uh, Little Jimmy Johnson skipped school yesterday to come down to the lakefront to see where his brother died. Uh, some smelt fishermen ignored that, you know, anyway. I handed it into the city. It was a night for the, for the Bulldog edition. And I took my then girlfriend up for dinner. And we were halfway through <laughs> the main course and it hit me. The kid's name wasn't Jimmy Johnson. His name was Jimmy Patterson. So I phoned the Globe, and I got the Night City editor. And I said, hi, um, I wonder if you could do me a favor. Uh, could you find the story that slugged drowning? And wherever you see the name Jimmy Johnson, could you change it to Jimmy Patterson? And the Night City editor said, who the fuck is this? And I said, my name is Enright. I just started today as a reporter. And he said, it's your last day, pal. <laughs> so I went back to the table and I said to Penny, my, I said, that's it, it's all over. I went to work the next day. And the city editor, a lunatic, 
named Patrick Scott came in and he walked over my desk and he said, I'm sorry, kid, we just didn't have room to run your story. And I spent seven years at the Globe and Mail. <laughs> so. That is sort of every emotional place that I think you go through. Yeah, absolutely. And then at the star, and you played both characters. You played the scumbag reporter and the absolutely, and you and, and the you got the you got the scoop. They know? used to have a thing in in the city, uh, uh, when there was a fatal. You had to get what's called a pickup. A pickup was a was a photograph of the dead person, usually a child, and you'd go to the front door, knock on the door, and say, "I'm terribly sorry to hear about little Johnny." I'm wondering, would you have a picture because he's such a compelling little boy and I think people would like to see what he looked like before the tractor ran over his face. Um, and they would say, uh, oh, well, let me look and see. I might have his confirmation or his first communion picture. And then the telly guy would show up and he'd say, Get the, give me a goddamn picture, will you? I'm on deadline. And the star guy, and we'd be on the porch fighting over who got the picture. And the worst time was when you'd go to the um, door and the mother would open the door and she'd say, hi, hello. And I'd say, I'm from the Globe and Mail. Oh yes, we get the Globe and Mail. She hadn't been told yet. And I could hear the sirens of the cops. So I just said, I hope you're happy with your subscription. And I, I ran away. They stopped that practice later because the guild said you can't do that anymore. You sent me to a funeral when I worked for you. I did? Sunday edition did. Really? Yeah. Summer of the Gun. Uh, oh, yes. And uh, I felt the uh, same sense of triumph when I dealt with the grieving family, and they wouldn't, didn't want journalists in the church, but uh, they allowed a microphone to send audio out to the parking lot where I was in the CBC van, and I felt like, okay, this is respectful, but we'll get the tape and a CBC exclusive. And then behind my back, the tech worked out a, a, a pooling agreement with the other guys. Did I give you a clipboard? I did not have a clipboard, no. Because I found early on, if you had a clipboard with a piece of paper on uh -huh. it, you'd go anywhere. Right. You'd go through the cop <laughs> lines. Excuse me, officer, do you mind if I, oh no, come on in. Um, this is all fascinating. We've digressed wildly and you haven't answered the question at all. Which is what? Try and frame it in a in simple English declarative sentence. <laughs> Some of my listeners are here. Um, how often in your career have you encountered the kind of ethical dilemmas and the fighting corruption, the kind of stuff we're going to see in this movie? I mean... Do you worry about every story in our paper, Mr. Fenway? It just seemed to me this was libelous material. We've got over a hundred stories in this issue. Check them all for libel? No, sir. Or any of them? No, sir. I see. You're a self-appointed censor only on stories involving big advertising. I was trying to protect us. Us? So you were Mr. Wharton, and for how much? I thought as a matter of policy... The policy? Since when has the advertising department of this paper dictated its policy on news? I would say twice. Uh-huh. Once when I was covering North York, there was a, develop a land developer, and there had been certain collusions between a, a counselor on North York Council and the land developer. The Globe didn't care about the telly. The Globe cared about the star, and we were always fighting the star, and we broke the story. But then the, the star had so much money that they just flattened us. You know, they went after everybody, and that was one time. Um, the other time was a, I don't know how to say this, a very prominent politician who belonged to the York Club. And I wrote a piece saying that he had been posted 
uh, for non-payment of dues. You know, you, they put their name up, and he sued. And uh, I had a copy of the, the posting. So he went away, and that was fine. Hutchison? Hello, baby. Here's some advice for your friend. Don't press your luck. Lay off of me. Don't print that story. What's that supposed to be? An order? If not tonight, then tomorrow. Maybe next week, maybe next year. But sooner or later, you'll catch it. It's not just me anymore. You'd have to stop every newspaper in the country now, and you're not big enough for that job. People like you've tried it before, with bullets, prison, censorship. But as long as even one newspaper will print the truth, you're finished. But no, you don't come across it very often, and I don't have the material, genetic material, to be a successful investigative reporter. They're all paranoid. They're all nuts. Um, uh, they're all obsessive-compulsive. And that's why they do great stuff, you know? They get caught up in the, in the drama of it. They're going to get the bad guys. And we need those reporters, you know? We, the Star is the only paper now in the country that does investigative reporting. Okay. Anything you want to tell everybody before we... we uh... The script is terrific. The writing is great. The, the characters are real characters from newsrooms that I've worked in. Ed Begley and uh, Paul Stewart and some of the other guys. Um, you can't exaggerate these types, can you? They, they exist in newsrooms. When I was at the Globe and Mail, the um, slot man or the national editor got into an argument with another editor on the rim. And they were shouting back and forth. And I was working on night rewrite, sitting at the typewriter. Typewriter, everybody? <laughs> anyway, he got in this fight with, argument with this other editor. And he said, for Christ's sake, Jack, I don't know why you're arguing this. You're never here half the time. And the other guy said, I am so here half the time. Uh, you, you can't write that. <laughs> you know, that has to be, that happens in, in newsrooms. I just love that. Michael, thank you very much. I know this is late for you, so thank it you. It is. For, I'm uh, up. Yes. Thank you. Can I keep the popcorn? You can keep the popcorn? Let's watch a movie. Thank all you right. all very much. Big hand of applause for Michael. That noise. What's that racket? That's the press, baby. The press. There's nothing you can do about it. This episode is also brought to you by Me Undies. I'm going to assume for the purpose of this message that you are a human being who wears underwear every day. And if that is true, it is time to try something better. Me Undies has created the world's most comfortable underwear with a blend of fabric that is softer than cotton. When you feel awesome from the inside out, you look awesome from the outside in. When you upgrade your Undies game, everyone wins. Life is better in Me Undies. MeUndies is made from Modal, a fabric that's three times softer than cotton. MeUndies has tons of colors and patterns from classic to bold to adventurous, and it's the only brand to offer matching pairs for men and women. All orders in the U.S. and Canada ship for free. If you don't love your first pair, MeUndies will pay you back, and you can keep that underwear, no questions asked. 
They offer underwear subscriptions, monthly underwear subscriptions. You can get additional savings when you purchase a pack of underwear. And for listeners of this podcast, you can get 20% off of your first order when you go to MeUndies.com slash CanadaLand. Again, if you don't love that first pair, it's free, so you have no excuse not to try this out. The link, again, is MeUndies.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. You tweeted earlier today that this is the scariest movie ever. <laughs> it is. <laughs> Why? Why? Um, if you are a journalist, uh, well, I, fir- I first saw this movie when I was just finishing J school and about to get out into the world and, uh, just not that I would ever do anything that this character is doing, but you sort of live through him vicariously throughout the movie and just, I don't want to spoil anything, but it just becomes excruciating. It's so tense and awkward and awful and terrifying that oh my god I just would never want to ever be in that situation worse than a zombie apocalypse in which situation in the situation of this reporter who made shit up or in the position of the people around him who he deceived I would much rather not be in the position of being the reporter that made shit up, but um, both. The whole thing is just so sad and terrifying and seeing how it unravels and, uh, yeah. I think it should be mandatory viewing for all journalism students. I don't know if there are any journalism students in the theater, but... There is this idea out there of, um, you know, reckless journalists getting things wrong, not giving a shit, moving on to the next story. That does happen. But I don't think what is widely recognized is the, like, the sinking feeling, the sickening feeling to your soul when you've been working on a story, you publish it, and you get that phone call that you got really anything wrong. Oh, God. Yeah. It's, uh, I have made mistakes in my career. Um, I've had corrections. There is, like, it's just the worst Yes, it, uh, the sinking soul is a good thing. You usually, unfortunately, because of the web now, you find out about your corrections as soon as they hit the the uh, the editing tool that puts it in the paper that you can't take it back because it's being printed and when it's online. So you know it's wrong before you go to bed and then you have to endure the whole next day knowing that it's wrong in the paper and feeling just horrible about yourself. And then the next day when the correction runs in the paper, it's like a whole week-long event of shame. So, I mean, and, and you know, factual errors are one thing. They happen, unfortunately. You can do your best to avoid them. You're lucky if you avoid them. But at the end of the day, we're all human and, and things happen. What I think, the reason this film really speaks to me um, and spoke to me as a young journalist is when I was in journalism school, there were different schools of thought around what you could change. So I remember, uh, especially in in sort of long form writing, there are some professors um, or journalists for that matter who feel, you know, if you do a long interview with someone, people don't speak very well. If you've ever looked at transcripts, um, I'm jumping around in thought as I'm talking right now. And you know what I'm saying because you can hear me and see me. But if you're reading it on paper, it might not make as much sense and you'd like oh if I could just get rid of that sentence and move this over here and put it into cohesive thought and there are some schools of thinking that that you're actually doing a service to readers if you do that and you can kind of fix quotes a little as long as you're not changing the meaning of what they're saying to me whenever there's cases of journalists who are caught plagiarizing or fabricating that's kind of how it started it started with a little thing like oh like I just wish I had the I'm pretty sure those were dark blue jeans, but maybe they were black. But I just—I really need to have that adjective in there. I'll just go with 
dark blue. And I'm sure it'll be fine. And the person won't remember anyway because it was a year ago and I'll never get caught. I'm just going to fix that quote a little because it would just make this piece sound so much better. And then it gets printed and you get praised. And then the next time, like, oh, I don't really know how the dialogue in that scene unfolded, but I, I kind of know. And, and maybe there was just, if I could, maybe I'll put a little joke in at that point and it makes the piece better and suddenly just kind of snowballs. And with people's words, all, I would say... Half of the times that I've ever gotten in trouble, like that quote wasn't quite right or like I wasn't represented in that story, it's because I listened to someone in an interview and felt that I understood exactly what they were saying and what they were highlighting as their most important point and I, that wasn't what they thought they were saying because we all know if you're in a relationship, something, someone can say something and you can say something back and you can be having entirely different conversations. And I think now take that. So in, in that scenario, now change something in, that, in those words. And suddenly you've taken something that could be misconstrued anyway and just completely um, altered it. So I think that that is the, the risk of ever falling down any of those traps where you're making any assumptions or adding anything at all. What possible protection can a newsroom have when a reporter in that organization is setting out to deceive everyone around them? It's really hard. Um, I think when you're a young reporter, you want to have constant discussions with your editor. What do you, you know, what did you see? Why do you think that? How do you know that? What did you ask them about X, Y, and Z? Um, not that you'd ever say, like, can I see your notes? But you might want to, you know, there is a level of trust. Um, but really provide a lot of guidance to um, young reporters. And I think that if people would at all feel any sort of temptation to embellish or fill in gaps. It's because they didn't get all the information in the first place. They didn't get the color of the genes that they wanted to put in their story. So you talk to young reporters about how to really, you know, cover all your bases in your reporting. But once you're further along in your career, I mean, there is a huge amount of trust between um, between editors and reporters, certainly on legally contentious stories, you know, I have, especially as an investigative reporter, I try to keep very diligent records. Um, I've, you know, you do have to sometimes play tapes or provide transcripts to to your lawyers or editors so they in very contentious things. But a lot of the details are just straight up trust, and again, that is why plagiarism, fabrication is is just so damaging to the whole industry. A senior editor or reporter can always turn to somebody lower down on the totem pole and say, how do you know that? Or let's go over this again. But people do rise to a place where they become difficult to challenge. Then um, Canada Land comes along. and <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this guy is a completely deceptive character, and he took everybody for a ride. But it does take two to tango. And he, yeah. he had to tell stories that people wanted to hear. The publicity it was giving to the magazine. Obviously, it was it was a boon time for him. So a boom time. So, yeah, it's a it's again it's a terrifying, terrifying story. <laughs> We're going to see situations here uh, in this film where people uh, look at a colleague who is a trusted colleague, someone they like, and say, "Is this person lying?" Have you ever had a moment in your career where you've had to question the veracity or the integrity of somebody who you work with? Let's start the movie. Okay. Um, 
<laughs> I, you know what? I've had the utmost respect for the people that I've worked with. Um, uh-huh. And uh, I, would, I would hope that I would have the courage to raise uh, issues with people if there ever were issues. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Robin. Um, we have a, a, a treat. Uh, this, is all, this has been a treat. We have one more because Jeet here is an editor, senior editor at the New Republic magazine, which is the magazine uh, is the focus of the movie we're about to see. And he lives in Toronto and has uh, agreed to come here and, and chat a little bit. So we'll have a we'll talk to Jeet for a second before we watch the movie. Everybody, big round of applause for Jeet here. I, I wanted to say a few things about the magazine. Now I have to say, nobody who's uh, was is in the uh, the movie was around Stephen last time. Is at the magazine now. The magazine has gone through a lot of changes, but I know a lot of the people who are in the movie, anyways, uh, through other, through other uh, reasons. Uh, and I want to maybe give a, few, a little bit of context for the magazine itself that might explain some of these things. So I think Robin made like a lot of great points about like how journalists fall into uh, deception and self-deception, which I think often go together. Like I, I, I think it's rare to have a deception that doesn't start as self-deception. Um, so the New Republic you know, started in 1914. The history of the New Republic is like a Henry James novel. It's a story of scoundrels who marry wealthy heiresses. The funding model of the magazine uh, is that it's never made money since 1914. Uh, and you might ask yourself, how can a magazine survive for more than a century? Well, it's because the business model is that you find very wealthy people to subsidize it. The magazine was founded in the living room of Theodore Roosevelt, the um, American president, and a bunch of Harvard undergraduates that he had befriended. Uh, and these uh, undergraduates were these intellectuals, uh, one of whom married somebody, um, uh, Dorothy Whitney from um, the Whitney Cotton Gin, which I guess was a big thing in its time. And right from the start, the magazine had this very elite air. I mean, obviously you have a president, you have these Harvard undergraduates. One of the undergraduates who founded the magazine was Walter Lippmann, who um, soon after the, you know, started the New Republic when he was 21, and then uh, within a few years became the leading American journalist and the editor of the um, New York Herald, which is the, which has the same stature then that the New York Times has now. So it became a kind of um, magazine that was um, aimed at the elite and um, uh, had a very strong connection to Harvard and was often a launching pad for journalistic careers. That's one reason why it's sort of, sort of known to have an influence. The dark side of that legacy can be seen in the Stephen Glass uh, story because there is that kind of pressure that comes to very uh, young people. And it's very much always been a magazine of young people. I'm, my title is senior editor, and I have to say I feel that's a jibe because I'm like literally the oldest person at the magazine, and, in, and, and the people working there are like basically my grandchildren. Uh, and <laughs> the, um, so, so you have like very young people who aren't paid a lot of money uh, and, but are going to have, you know, have a really good shot um, because they work at the New Republic to later get jobs at the Washington Post or the New York Times or Time Magazine uh, or CNN. Uh, and so it, there's a lot of pressure to become a star. Uh, and I think, I think this is maybe also like an American thing a little bit because I, I, I notice this more in America than here, that there's, like, there's a certain class of Americans where if you're not publishing at the New Yorker by the time you're 23, like, your life is over. Uh, you know, like, like there's that sort of you know, very hothouse atmosphere. Uh, so I, I think that that's part of what is going on. Um, the other thing I'll say about the 
uh, movie, which really struck me as I was kind of watching it, it sort of depoliticizes the magazine. Uh, the magazine has very much always been a political magazine of sort of you know progressive liberal opinion, very close to the Democratic Party. And there are things in the um, movie, um, there's like an editor who gets fired and it's sort of made to be about commas. But the, the real story is that uh, Marty Peretz, who's the publisher, fired uh, the editor because the editor was too critical of um, uh, Bill Clinton and uh, Al Gore. And so, so I think that, um, and that sort of depoliticization really leads to the sort of figure of Marty Peretz, um, who you'll see in the magazine, who's the publisher, not given the emphasis. And I think he's a much more important figure in the story of Stephen Glass, and it's quite given here. And I, I just want to say a little bit about that, because um, Marty Peretz was the owner of the magazine for uh, many years, from the 70s um, until uh, um, uh, about like five or ten years ago. Um, and he uh, married not one but two very wealthy women to finance his <laughs> uh, political and uh, journalistic activities. Uh, the second woman who's married to for a longer time was from the Singer family. If you uh, know anything about sewing machines, the Singer sewing machine uh, was, was a big deal at one point. Um, and so Marty Ferretz, very much in the pattern of the history of this magazine, is a sort of, you know, like an intellectual guy who marries rich women so that he can spend their money on, on this magazine. <laughs> and, and the, yeah. yeah, it's, it's a business model. It's, a, not, it's not quite Canada land, but it is a business model. Will it work online? <laughs> yeah, uh, but, but by the way, by the way, um, our current owner is Chris Hughes, who didn't marry a wealthy person, but he was at Harvard, and he was a roommate of Mark Zuckerberg, and so Chris was one of the founders of Facebook and got $700 million, which let him buy the magazine. But he's selling it now, so if there's anyone in the audience who is worth several hundred million dollars, I need to talk to you. After, you can talk We'll talk later about that. Yeah, okay. But I want to say this about... Marty Peretz's role in the magazine, which I think in, um, speaks to the Stephen Glass story in a way that doesn't quite come through in, in the movie. Because Marty Peretz would have um, certain hob I mean, hobby horses and obsessions, uh, one of which is just personality types. He really liked um, Harvard under, undergraduate males, like like as, as a former New Republic staff writer said, he liked to be surrounded by young Harvard Men, Marty was always like sort of like uh, hugging and kissing men, and uh, and. What uh, movie are you making us watch? <laughs> uh, so so Stephen Glass, there's a, there's one of the stories that he did came out of Marty Peretz because Peretz was at editorial conferences would often talk about taxi cabs and how about there's a lot of um, African immigrants who are in the taxi cab industry and saying like why aren't African Americans in the taxi cab industry and the uh, with the sort of connotation that they don't have a work ethic. And the first cover story that Stephen Glass did was about the Washington DC taxi cab industry and how like it's dominated by immigrants, including immigrants from Africa and Asia, and that the uh, uh, African Americans of uh, didn't want to do this hard labor. Uh, so so, so there's, a, there's a way in which the sort of deception partially comes from this sort of environment where you want to please the boss. Uh, you know, He's who, a brown noser. And, and, uh, yeah, 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 which I, I don't think quite comes through in the movie. So, so I wanted to kind of make that point. Let yeah. me ask you one final question before we move on to, yeah. to the screening. Um, 
you know, Chris Hughes buying the magazine, lots of turnover of staff, lots of fireworks, lots of movement. Does this all trace back to Stephen Glass? How does a magazine recover? Yeah. And has it ever? Ah, that's a really interesting and good uh, question. I think that the sort of 1990s, I, I think the thing that's often forgotten is that the Stephen Glass thing came at a very chaotic period for the magazine and that he was only one symptom. There's another writer, Ruth Chalette, who got did like a, a story about the Washington Post where she got like a lot of facts wrong, wrong and a lot of quotes wrong and and plagiarized a lot of stuff as well. And so there's, I think that a lot of the chaos of the magazine in the 1990s um, caused the magazine to go into a real tailspin uh, it, so that it lost circulation. It had been at about 100,000 like um, in the 1980s and it uh, by the uh, and you could still buy it. Like I remember, there's a period where you could buy the New Republic at newsstands in Toronto, and you could you can't buy that anymore. And the circulation dwindled to about forty thousand, which is still where it's at. And so, so I think that the magazine went to a real tailspin, and then there was a kind of and um, and there was a lot of other turmoil about like the sort of the the future of it, which. I guess I'm entangled in. <laughs> <laughs> we'll leave it there then. Yeah. Uh, both of you, thank you so much. Yeah. This has been a great little chat. Thank you very much. Okay. That is your Canada Land episode. Hope you enjoyed it. You can email me anytime, jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read everything you send and I respond when I can. We are on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is CanadaLandShow.com. Our crowdfunding site is Patreon.com slash CanadaLand. I make this show with Katie Jensen. Special thanks this week to Eric Fayette at the Review Cinema. Next episode of Commons is up on Tuesday. Next episode of Shortcuts is up on Thursday. We offer this show free to community and campus radio stations across this country, and the guy who handles the syndication is Russell Gregg. If you like what we do, please support us. So you want to be a reporter. Here's some advice about this racket. Don't ever change your mind. It may not be the oldest profession, but it's the best. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.